Hi, this is Bill Arnold. Missed a show or need me talking to help you sleep tonight? I have several solutions to that situation. Here are the podcasts from the show. You are the best for listening and supporting Faith Radio. Weekday mornings from 6. Welcome to Afternoons with me. I'm Bill Arnold, and uh, we're going to have a great hour coming up. David Wheaton and Dr. Alex McFarland will be joining me, and they will be coming on in that order. How about that? It's going to be great. Uh, David started a series on the Book of Beginnings and how relevant it is for today. So we're going to talk a little bit about Genesis chapter 2 and 3, and it's going to be a great discussion. And then Dr. Alex McFarland will be joining me, and who knows what's on his mind? But it's usually something pretty stimulating, you know? So let me take 60 seconds and bring on David. Faith Radio has a long legacy of sharing Christ's love that stretches back to the 1940s when Billy Graham was president of Northwestern Schools. You can read more about the story on our website, myfaithradio.com, where you'll learn about the sacrificial gifts of students giving a dollar a week to put the station on the air. A dollar a week then is the equivalent of $10 a week now, or $40 a month. And you can keep the legacy going with a founder's gift of 40 a month. Thank you for making your monthly gift today at MyFaithRadio.com. Following Jesus in every season. Faith Radio. Welcome back to the show. So glad to have David Wheaton on the show. He's younger than me, but I really look up to him. Go to thechristianworldview.org to learn more about David, his radio show, and all of his uh, products and books. And and uh, he's a great resource for the truth. He speaks God's truth all the time, nonstop. And that's one of the many things I love about David. David, welcome. Hello, David. Good to be with you today, Bill. Yeah, thank you so much. I I'm lo- here. Do you hear me, Bill? I hear you loud and clear. Yeah. I love this. Good, Good I, to be with you today. I love this series you started us on, this the Book of Beginnings. And it's so interesting to start at kind of the beginning of the year. And uh, so far, our listeners are just loving this, including me. Yeah, I, I think there's just so much that is relevant. <laughs> you wouldn't think so. You think Genesis, you know, uh, 6,000 years ago was written. Is it really that relevant? Or not 6,000 years ago, but anyway, thousands of years ago sure. was written. And how is that re- relevant for me today? And it's incredibly relevant as you talk about the institutions that God established from the very beginning. We talked about a couple times ago that just the fact in the first verse of the Bible that it says God exists, and then the third verse that he speaks Mm-hmm. That we have a God who exists and he reveals himself to us is incredibly important. It's so powerful. Now, before we jump into Genesis 2 and 3 and a little bit of uh, what we're going to discuss today, I'd love to get your take on the State of the Union address last night and basically how it, you know, how does it relate to this Christian worldview we talk about? Yeah, well, I, I think it's incredibly relatable. And wow, that was quite a State of the Union. I've, I've watched a lot of them over the years for many different presidents. And I'd, I'd have to say that that was the 
best State of the Union address I've ever seen. And it's the most dramatic State of the Union address I've ever seen. I've never seen a Speaker of the House rip up the speech immediately afterwards as Speaker Nancy Pelosi did. I mean, it was and then the 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 call outs in the room to, you know, the the airmen from Tuskegee and the the Venezuelan uh, outsider leader and, you know, the 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 the, the reuniting of the soldier who coming back to his wife and kids and they didn't know he was going to be there and Rush Limbaugh having can I mean, the whole thing was just un- was unbelievable drama. Usually you kind of, you know, hope you can get through an hour and 15 minutes of a, a state of the union address, but that was really something else. But other than that, the drama of it, Bill, I just thought it was the most conservative uh, policy platform that I've ever seen in my lifetime. And I say how that relates to the Christian worldview is that, I really believe, and I'm probably some of your listeners will, will differ with this, but I, I believe a biblical worldview naturally flows into conservative political philosophy. And I don't say Republican political philosophy because parties change. The Democrats and the Republicans have changed over the years. But conservative political um, policies such as limited government with separations of power, that flows directly from the worldview of original sin, which we're going to talk about today. The fact that man is sinful And when there's a few men controlling a lot of people, there's a lot of room for corruption and tyranny there. That's why the founders had limited government with separation of powers because of the sin nature, something we we learn about right in the first chapters of Genesis. I mean, another conservative policy is the incentive to work. Uh, If a man won't work, neither let him eat. In other words, everyone who's able to work should be working. Now, Now, there's some that aren't able to work and they should be helped. But those that are able to work and don't just live off other taxpayers, that's not a conservative political philosophy. That's based on the Bible, the promotion of life rather than abortion, the liberties of conscience, freedom of conscience, freedom of speech, freedom of religion. Uh, these are things rooted in Scripture, the God-designed family of one man and one woman. That's, that's, a, that's a biblical concept that bleeds right into having a conservative uh, worldview. Even, even giving, charitable giving, whether it's willing— willing giving versus like, you know, on your own versus coerce, which is like tax and redistribute. So all of these things that we heard from President Trump last night, now you may not like his personality and there are things I agree with in that regard. Um, But from a purely policy standpoint, that is the most conservative political philosophy I've heard in my lifetime, including Ronald Reagan. Wow. That's a great analysis, David. All right. Let's let's talk a little bit about uh, Genesis 2 and 3. Um, let's start with the the test that God put in the garden for Adam and Eve. Well, isn't that interesting? You think God created this perfect heavens and earth and every days of creation and so forth. And then all of a sudden, God tells uh, Adam, he puts him into the garden and says, from any tree of the garden you may eat freely, but from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat it. For in the day that you eat from it, you will surely die. You think, why did God say that? Well, I think that goes back to the, the gracious God that we serve that gives us free will. He didn't create us to be robots. And he didn't, he wasn't overly restrictive in this little test of obedience. This, this test of faith is what it was, as to whether we're going to obey God or not. Was Adam going to worship God or was he going to choose to go his own way? And that's what God's test always is. It's always a test of faith. And he gave Adam a little test. It wasn't a big test, by the way. It wasn't like you can't eat from any tree in the garden. It's like you can eat from all the trees in the garden except for one. So for anyone who thinks God's overly restrictive, 
take a look at this example. He's not overly restricted at all. You can eat from all of them except that one. But this is the same test of faith that each one of us faces today. That's why this is so relevant, is because we go through our day and we have little tests of faith. Are we going to think and live uh, the way God instructs us to live in his word? Or are we going to go our own way? That's the test of faith that each of us has in our own life. And Adam and Eve were given that test right from day one, or not day one, but early on in the garden. Well, again, that's very uh, concise, which is what I love when you answer, David. You always give a nice, concise answer. So let's talk about Adam and Eve and their significance to God creating them, male and female, and and how that's relating to male and female relationships uh, today. Yeah. I mean, in every way. Think about it. I listened to the governor of Michigan last night give the response to the State of the Union, the Democrat governor, and she talked about the, the values of the, the Democrat Party, which was a woman's right to health care. That's just code for abortion. And for people to be who they are and marry who they are, I think she said, or something like that. But what that was, that's code for, you know, people should be able to marry who they want, whether a man can marry a man or a man can decide to be a woman, that kind of thing. This isn't a direct assault on what God established in the second chapter of Genesis. I mean, that's that's all it is. I mean, you see how relevant that is today. That's being challenged big time in our society today. And so God says in Genesis 2.18, it is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. Then he forms man out of the dust of the ground. Uh, he And then man gave names to all the the, the, the creatures of the, the earth and so forth. Then it says, but, but for Adam, there was not found a helper suitable for him. And, and this is very interesting, Bill, because this tells us that all of us are designed for relationship. And not only are we designed for relationship with each other, but we're also designed for relationship with God first and foremost, because God himself, if you think about it, why is God a trinity? Well, God has relationship within himself, Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. There's, there's a relationship there, and he created us to be in relationship with him, in relationship with others, and the primary relationship for those who will be married someday is to be with that of your spouse of the opposite sex, I need to add, in our day and age. So right here in the second chapter of Genesis, you have the, the creation of male and, and female, uh, marriage, the authority structure, by the way, between husband and wife is established right here. And it's not based on value, like men are more important than women, not at all. But it's based on function and role, modeling, by the way, after the Trinity. There's authority structure within the, the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. How many times did Jesus say, I do the will of my Father? There's an authority structure there as in the Trinity, as there should be in the, in the marriage and family as well. And that's why today, how relevant this is today, when that authority structure gets messed up in a family, when it gets tipped, like it did with Adam and Eve in the very next chapter of Genesis, that's when there are prob- problems in the marriage and there's problems in the home. Mm-hmm. David Wheaton is my guest. ChristianWorldview.org is his website. We're going to take a very short break. We'll be right back with lots more with David. back with David Wheaton, talking about the book of beginnings and how relevant it is for today. We're still uh, in Genesis chapter 2 and 3. And so, David, let's talk about uh, the nakedness. How, why yeah. is nakedness emphasized in the yeah, pre- and post-fall? 
Yeah, for the same reason that you and I wore clothes today to work. Um, isn't that interesting how the last verse of Genesis chapter 1, it just seemed like out of nowhere it throws us in. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. I mean, why, why, why is that a detail to put in the text? Well, this is the last sentence before the fall of man and woman, before original sin. And so there must be some significance there as to why God would inspire Moses to put this in the book. Well, the reason that it said this is because it's saying that after this creation, there, there's no sin yet. No sin had occurred. No lust had occurred. So looking at each other or anyone else, people could have walked around naked and there would have been no lust in a, in a perfect world. There was no perversion of sexuality had occurred yet. So there's no, no shame. But this is exactly the reason, like I just said, that you and I wear clothes today, because we know something inside of us, our conscience, our society knows that you're not to walk around naked because there's a shame to, that took place to, after that original sin. Everything changed. So right after the fall, they immediately again realized they were naked and they tried to cover themselves from their, their, their shame. So what was pure and normal before the fall turned into shame. And this is the exact same relevance for why we wear clothes today. Mm-hmm. All right. So temptation, David, it seems kind of always hinge around in, indeed God has said out of Genesis chapter three. I'd love for you to talk about that. Yeah. Well, right after that verse about man and wife were both naked and were not ashamed, the very next, I believe it's the very next verse of chapter three, um, or the very first verse of chapter three, it says, and, and he said to the woman, the serpent, indeed, has God said, you shall not eat from any tree of the garden. And then he got into a conversation with Eve, who was there, and Eve said, we can eat from the fruit of the trees of the garden, but not the tree in the middle of it. And then, and then the serpent says to the woman, uh, Satan, who's indwelt the serpent, said to the woman, you surely will not die, for God knows that in the day you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. And just want to say this, Bill, that this temptation that Satan presented to Eve is always what temptation is. It always comes in slightly altering God's word, as as um, Satan did there. He didn't completely lie in the first go around by saying, you shall not from any tree in the garden. It was one tree of the garden. Okay, so he distorted it. He slightly altered it. Or he then went on after she responded, saying, no, that's not what he said. Then he completely distorted and changed it and lied. And so ultimately, this is what we do when we decide to give in and sin by obeying a temptation in our life. In other words, we decide to choose something, we decide we want something or love something more than we trust God or more than we love God. So here's an example. So if you're someone, let's say, in your, your, your mid-20s today and you're a Christian and you're dating someone and thinking of marrying someone who's a non-Christian— and you know what the Word says about not being unequally yoked together with an unbeliever. It says to marry in the Lord in 1 Corinthians 7. The temptation comes in your mind to start distorting that or rationalizing or trying to figure out ways around that rather than trusting that God put that principle in His Word, not just for our, oh, the throw a wet blanket on what we want to do, but actually for our good, like our happiness and good, and then His glory ultimately in the end. So what Eve should have done and what we should do uh, when we are faced with this kind of temptation, when, when the truth of God's Word gets twisted by someone else, or maybe in our own mind, our own rationalizing mind, is to recognize the temptation 
and then replace it with a truth of Scripture. But instead, she dwelled on the temptation. She saw that the tree was good. It was a delight to her eyes. It was desirable to make one wise, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life. And she ate it, and everything changed. And interestingly, as we were talking about in the first segment, Bill, her husband came by, e, uh, Adam, and he ate as well. You can see that the authority and protection area uh, aspect of the marriage had, was, had broken down after her sin. In other words, where, where was her protector at this point? Uh, the Bible says in 1 Corinthians 3, 7, you husbands in the same way, live with your wives in an understanding way as with someone weaker. That doesn't mean, again, worse value. It just means men and women are different. And this kind of twisted the marital relationship, and we see the result of it was the consequence of original sin. Hmm. So Adam and Eve, their sin, and, and it's we call that the fall of man. So the mm-hmm. consequences are still incredibly relevant today. And as we're talking about the book of beginnings and how it is so relevant for today, I'd love for you to just elaborate on that a little bit. Well, it is incredibly relevant. I mean, this has shaped our whole world, this first sin. It talks about the New Testament of Romans as in Adam all die. That's the explanation for why all of us die. We're all going to die. Um, that's the why there's so much violence and oppression and every, every other kind of sin in the world because it just multiplied from there. Everyone born of a man and a woman is a sinner by nature, and then they shortly become a sinner by choice. And so th- this explains, if you're trying to figure out why there's so much difficulty and conflict and in the world, it's because of original sin, since corrupted God's perfect creation. But we live between that corruption, but we also live between the, the what happened immediately afterwards, back at, after the fall, was the beginning of redemption, that God wasn't going to just leave us in our sins and leave us to die and be condemned to hell for eternity, which was what we all deserve. He was going to send a Redeemer, and he showed that right away. So you ask about consequences. He said to the woman, there's going to be pain in childbirth. You're going to have a desire to rule over your husband. Instead, he's going to rule over you. There's going to be conflict in marriage. I mean, how relevant is that for today? I watched my wife give birth. There was pain in childbirth. Let me tell you, any woman who's had a child knows that very well. Anyone who's been in a difficult marriage where there's a fight for control understands that consequence. Same thing for Adam. God told him there'd be difficulty in farming and thorns and thistles. Anyone who's been on a farm or tried to grow anything in your backyard knows this is the case. And so, you know, that those are the consequences. But the good news is, Bill, and we can talk about this in maybe the last part today, is that God didn't leave us helpless and hopeless after this original sin. He immediately worked to redeem us and be able to make us right with him, to reconcile us to him after this fall. Yeah, and that's the incredible good news that we can talk about now. And I would love uh, for you to deliver that beautiful message, David. Yeah, well, in Genesis 3.21, again, just sort of out of nowhere, after Adam and Eve have sinned, and they try to hide from God, which, how is that going to work? Um, you know, God confronts them, tells them what the consequences are going to be, that they're going to they're gonna spiritually die, and they're also going to physically die at some point. Not right away. They were cast out of the garden. But God says this. There's a little, a little phrase in there. It says, Then the Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. In other words, cover their nakedness. Again, this nakedness, issue of nakedness, comes up again. And you think, well, what does that mean? Well, garments of skin, where did God get those? Well, God apparently killed an animal and took off those uh, skins off the animal to cover Adam and Eve. This is the first picture 
right there in the third chapter of the Bible, right at the very beginning, that God was not going to leave us, again, helpless and hopeless over our sin. He was going to provide a substitute, like sin required death. There was the lesson, but God wasn't going to leave us in our, our, our sin. He was going to provide a substitute so we can be made right with him. Back at that time, the the sacrifice of animals, the whole sacrificial system in the Old Testament, all that was doing was pointing to this, this perfect Lamb of God someday that was going to come, His Son, Jesus Christ, who was going to die as a substitute for our sin on the cross and in turn give us the garment of His righteousness so we could be made right with Him. 2 Corinthians 5.21 is one of the most key verses in all of Scripture, and it covers this issue of the substitutionary atonement of Christ. God made Christ— who knew no sin, to be sin on our behalf, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. That bill is the best news ever because it answers our biggest problem. We're sinners. How can we be made right with the holy God? And right there in Genesis 3, God starts this this, this, this concept, this system of substitution that instead of killing Adam and Eve right away and covering them or whatever, no, he kills an animal on their behalf and takes their skin and covers Adam and Eve, just like he would do thousands of years later when Jesus Christ would come. He'd kill his own son and take Christ's righteousness and cover us with his righteousness so we could be right with God. Amazing. That is just amazing. So, David, just a couple minutes left. Uh, if I am hearing this for the first time, what would be the step? How would I go about um, receiving this good news? Well, the Bible says that by grace are you saved through faith, not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, not as a result of our works that no one should boast. In other words, there's a message, there's revelation, there's good news. We talk about the gospel means good news. The revelation is that God has created us to be in relationship with him. But like we talked about today, we all have sinned, not just Adam and Eve, we all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And there are consequences to sin, just like Adam and Eve experienced spiritual death and eternal separation from God. But then the good news comes in, Bill, like we talked about. That's why God sent his son Jesus to die in our place, to, to pay the penalty we deserve to pay. God considered Jesus having paid it for us. And so we, re, we receive that revelation. We receive forgiveness and eternal life, the Bible says, by believing that by faith. In other words, not believing in our own good works, to make us right with God, but believing in the good work that Jesus did on our behalf. We trust in his work and his righteousness alone, not in anything we do. And so when you pray to God and confess and repent of your sin, say, Lord, I, I know I, I've sinned against you over and over again. I deserve judgment, but I put all my trust and faith in what Jesus Christ did for me on that cross. He, he died, he was buried, he rose again victoriously. I put my faith in him and his righteousness alone God promises to forgive us, to save us, and have us come to heaven for eternity. Fantastic, David. Thank you so much for uh, doing the show. I always love talking to you, and have a great Same rest here, of Bill. the day. Yeah, David Wheaton has been my guest. TheChristianWorldview.org is his website, TheChristianWorldview.org. Head over there and check it out. We'll take a short break, and then when we come back, Dr. Alex McFarland will be joining us. On Faith Radio.
Welcome back to the show. I'm so glad to be welcoming back Dr. Alex McFarland to the show. You know he's a regular, and I just love chatting with him. Alex, welcome back to the show. Oh, Bill, thank you for having me, brother. It's always a great, great honor to be on. Yeah, and I know you're speaking tonight at a church. Whereabouts are you yes, in the world? I am literally across the street from Duke University in Durham, North Carolina. Nice. And Duke, you know, here in in the Raleigh-Durham area, you've got Chapel Hill, NC State, Meredith, North Carolina Central, and Duke. You've got a number of universities right here. And Research Triangle Park, sometimes people might have heard of RTP, a lot of defense contractors, a lot of computers, a lot of pharmaceuticals. Uh, It really here in the Bible Belt is um, just an enclave of really militant secularism. And, you know, Duke was a Methodist school in its founding, and I've I've dialogued with so many students and a few professors. And, oh, Bill, this is going to blow your mind. I've got to tell you something. But I've dialogued with a lot of students that are skeptics and agnostics. So we're expecting about 175 students here, and I'm going to do a, a presentation on the gospel and biblical worldview. But Duke University a Methodist school in its origins, Methodist, um, has several chaplains. And I was on a radio show, it's probably been five years ago, but one of the chaplains, a chaplain, mind you, is an atheist. <laughs> and in the, Ra- the Raleigh News and Observer, um, he, he kind of brazenly, proudly said, that he doesn't believe in any, quote, cosmic guy in the sky, end of quote. Mm-hmm. So he and I were on a radio show. But um, a chaplain, uh, which, you know, one would think that a chaplain would at least believe in God, if not Jesus. But such is the state of many public universities today. Isn't that amazing? That is amazing. Now, as you're preparing for your talk tonight, and you're going to be uh, giving a talk on apologetics in the case for, for God— I'm holding in my hand uh, one of your 20 books called Exposing the Ten Biggest Myths About Christianity, The God mm-hmm. You Thought You Knew. And I, I, I would imagine a question like this might come up. Christianity is intolerant and judgmental towards others. Yeah, you know, we do get that a lot, uh, that kind of a question like, what would a Christian or a minister say in response to that? In a way, you know, Bill, I, I think that the Christian gospel as presented in the New Testament is the most inclusive of belief systems because Jesus, the Son of God who rose from the dead, Jesus said, whosoever may come, whosoever will may come. You know, um, it, it really, in Old and New Testaments, you know, I think about Isaiah 55, 1 through 7, whoever's thirsty, let them take of the water of life freely. Um, you know, if you're hungry, uh, come and get the bread that truly satisfies uh, God. And then in John three sixteen, Jesus says, whosoever will may come. And then Revelation 22, the New Testament is concluding. And it again says, whosoever will let them take of the water of life freely. So, uh, you know, on the one hand, yeah, I mean, Jesus, not not just human beings, but the Son of God, says that we have to humble ourselves and confess our sins and put our faith in Him to be saved. But anybody can be saved. Anybody and everybody that will turn to Christ can be forgiven. And that's, uh, there, there's one way to be saved, 
but anybody that wants to know Christ can, and that really is very inclusive. Mm-hmm. And all religions make uh, inclusive claims, don't they? They really do. Uh, they really do. I uh, interviewed a guy on the radio a couple of years ago from Boston College named Stephen Prothero, and he wrote a book uh, that called God is Not One, O-N-E. And the reason he wrote this book, and I, I had him on the radio, he made no pretense of being a Christian at all, but he looked at 24 of the world's major religions, and he said, you know, in academia and in media, he kept hearing over and over and over that, you know, well, all religions teach basically the same thing. And he said, well, you know, he decided to look at that. And he said, no, they don't. They teach wildly different things. And here's what he said, and I would agree. He said, they all might be false, but they can't all be true. Mm. You know, Islam, Christianity, Buddhism, Hinduism, Zoroastrianism, Shintoism, animistic religions, I mean— all all faith systems might be false, but they can't all be true because they make very different exclusivistic claims that cancel each other out. If God is Jehovah, then by definition, God is not Allah. You know, if Jesus is the one and only risen Savior, then of necessity, everything not Jesus isn't the the way to heaven. Mm-hmm. I, Chesterton said it this way, there there are 10,000 ways to be lost. There's one way to be saved, and that's through a new birth relationship with Jesus. That's great. I love that, Alex. So what happens when a person says to you, you know, I'm I'm a really broad-minded person, so I'm going to study a lot of world religions uh, because that's the way I I roll. What would you say to that person? Mm -hmm. Uh, I think that's a good thing to study. I think it's a good thing. You know, uh, in Luke 24, Jesus said, you know, he appeared to the disciples he'd risen, Luke 24, 36, and he said, touch and see a spirit hath not flesh and bones as you see me have. All right. I think about this, where Jesus was offering uh, for the disciples to investigate for themselves that he had risen. It wasn't a ghost. He he was a corporeal physical, risen Savior. The angels at the empty tomb said to the women, come, see the place where he lay, past tense verb. He had lain there, but he was risen. And First Peter 1, uh, 16 through 21 says this, we have not followed cleverly devised fables when we've made known unto you the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. So, so to the person who says, you know, I'm broad-minded, I want to investigate Super good, uh, but I would say this: be willing when you find truth to respond to it, because a lot of people in our day, um, it's kind of like uh, it's all about the journey, not the destination. You know, it's all about the search, not the conclusion. Mm-hmm. And searching is fine if you're willing to amend your life once you actually do come upon truth, because very often the the person who says, you know, well, I'm very broad-minded, uh, and I just want to search things out. If they really mean that, I applaud that, because I'm convinced, like Will Durant, editor of the Great Books of the Western World, um, Presidential Medal of Freedom, one of the greatest historians who ever lived, uh, Will Durant's 
60-year career as a historian has been called one of the most important works of history in history. And Will Durant said, if you follow the evidence wherever it leads and don't abandon the search, you will wind up at Calvary. Wow. That's powerful. Uh, it really is. I mean, from um, certainly the, the most respected historian of the last century. The only thing, Bill, though, is a lot of people, they give, you know, very grandiose lip service to the idea that I'm just going to search and search. But I, I fear that many of the people who say that really have no intention of opening their heart to Christ if they did uh, really come to the recognition that uh, – and, and I would say this, and th- this is what sets Jesus apart, I mean, from Muhammad – Joseph Smith, Mary Baker Eddy, L. Ron Hubbard, Charles Manson, Jim Morrison, uh, the 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 um, the the great Bab who just died, who was um, a leader of a splinter group off of Islam. Uh, here's the thing about Jesus that's different: prophesied coming, fulfillment of Old Testament prophecies that were beyond his realm to contrive or orchestrate. I mean, born in Bethlehem. I think about Psalm 22, that they would pierce his hands and his feet. He would be given vinegar to drink by a Roman soldier. I mean, there's no way that Jesus, had he been an imposter, could have orchestrated all of that. Uh, And the fulfilled prophecies, and of course, the biggest confirming proof of all that he rose from the dead. So, To the person who wants to go on a search, do it. But I would say this, um, the work of everybody from Aquinas to C.S. Lewis to Josh McDowell to Ravi Zacharias to Lee Strobel, William Lane Craig, Norm Geisler, uh, Gary Habermas, Michael Acona, many of those people started their own journeys as skeptics. But not only their academic brilliance, but their, their honesty led them to the conclusion that I would put forth to your dear listeners, Bill, one man alone in history was raised from the dead. I mean, that that sets him apart. And here's a man who made exclusivistic claims, claimed to be God incarnate, the one doorway to heaven. He loved the world. He'll forgive any sin. And he coupled those over-the-top claims with an incredible unparalleled Example of proof, he rose from the dead. Um, The search can be culminated very quickly. Come to Jesus, the one who proved himself to be the Savior. I like it. So, Alex, you're going to get people that are also going to say, and there's probably people listening that would say Christianity just didn't really work for me. Mm. Yeah. You, you may you may have had listeners call into the show that and and I think we all could say this. I, hey, I've been a believer just over thirty years. I would say Christianity is not the subtraction of all your problems. If by quote Christianity didn't work for me, if by that you mean I tried to follow Jesus and life was still hard, I will grant you. Sometimes life really does get hard when you seriously decide to follow the Lord. Uh, Christianity is not the subtraction of all your problems, is it? No. 
Uh, now, it is the presence of God with you every step along life's journey, uh, but uh, Jesus said in this world we would have tribulation. And so, you know, Christianity is an experience and it's a journey. It's an event and a lifelong adventure. So a person becomes a follower of Jesus by admitting their sin, acknowledging who Christ is, and then asking. So admit, acknowledge, and ask, Lord, I admit that I'm a sinner. I've, I've broken your laws and I'm a guilty sinner, but I acknowledge Jesus is the Son of God and he died on the cross for the whole world, and that includes me, and I believe that. And, Lord, I'm asking you. And, and by the way, in John six thirty seven, a number of places, Jesus said, The one who comes to me I will not reject. So if you admit your sin, acknowledge what Christ did on the cross, and ask him, he will forgive you. That's called the new birth, being born literally from above. The Greek word is anothen. It means to be born from heaven. However... The rest of your life is a great adventure of of walking with Christ, and he is faithful. But what Jesus does, not only he will save you, but he will make you better than you were. He will shape you and mold you. And very often, Christians, even the, the most devout of Christians, will go through hard circumstances, and and we may think, you know, God— you know, do you love this person or not? My goodness, this Christian is re- really being tested and stretched and purged and purified. Billy Graham said this, great, great Christian leader who went to be with the Lord February 21 of 2018. Billy Graham said, God accepts us as we are, but he loves us too much to leave us that way. Oh, that's beautiful. Alex, let me take a shot. Oh, go ahead. Yeah. yeah. Well, C.S. Lewis said this. C.S. Lewis said, I never doubted that God would do what is best for me. My only fear was how painful that best might be. Well, those are back-to-back great quotes. <laughs> yeah, you are ready for tonight, my friend. Let me I'm take excited a- about Jesus. I know you are. Alex McFarland's my guest, alexmcfarland.com, where you can go check out his website, all of his books and resources. Take a little break. We'll be right back with Alex. Dr. Alex McFarland is my guest. AlexMcFarland.com is his website. And as he's getting ready to speak uh, to a group tonight uh, at Duke University, I'm just curious, Alex, because there's going to be people that are going to talk about uh, Christianity. How can it be loving and, and kind and real if a loving God would send someone to hell? I would love for you to comment on what Aaron Rodgers uh, said. Now, he grew up in a Christian family. And he said, I don't know how you can believe in a God who wants to condemn most of the planet to a fiery hell. I mean, what type of loving, sensitive, omnipresent, omnipotent being wants to condemn most of his beautiful creation to a fiery hell at the end of all of this? Mm, well, you know, that, that is um, a question that, is, that has caused a lot of people to really struggle um, I would take issue with the fact that he said uh, that God wants to 
condemn people. You know, the Bible says that God is long-suffering. In other words, God is full of patience and mercy, not wanting any to perish. That's right. Second Peter three nine. So, so God doesn't want anybody to be lost. However, listen carefully. While God will offer heaven, He won't force it. C.S. Lewis again. You know, um, somebody asked, "Why isn't everybody saved?" And he said, "Well, against their will or with it, because there there are people." I, Bill, I've had atheists say to me. Uh, I, I've asked different ones, and I've said. If there were a God, an eternal, all-wonderful, all-loving, merciful, omnibenevolent, you know, every, every good, high, perfect attribute you can imagine, if there were a wonderful God with a wonderful place called heaven, if there was an afterlife that was bliss, eternity, be with God, would you want to be a part of that? And interestingly enough, I've had a number of people say, no, if there is a heaven, I do not want to go there. Um, Peter Kreeft at uh, Boston College, brilliant head of the philosophy department, or at least he was at one time, maybe he still is, he said the question is not so much um, if God is love, how could there be a hell? The question ought to be, said Kreeft, um, why would anybody go to hell if man is sane? Because, you know, it, it it would only be rational to want to avoid hell and pursue heaven. But but here's here's the thing. I think that we we have a less than accurate view of who God is. We have a less than accurate view of what humans are. Um part of the reason that there is a part of eternity that is apart from God is because God made human beings. And the reality of a relationship with God had to include the component of choice or will. Um, God offers himself, but he doesn't force himself. And if people uh, do not want to be in a relationship with God, God is not going to make them. Because forced love, as, as Lewis said, I keep defaulting to C.S. Lewis, but he was so brilliant on this point. He said, forced love is coercion, and forced love is not love. Forced love is rape, and God is not a cosmic rapist. He answers himself, but he, he doesn't force it. And so it's not that God wants, like in, in a, a, a Dante-esque view of an inferno, it's not that God is in this you know, insane glee throwing people in a barbecue pit. Um, God is so merciful. God has done everything, literally moves heaven and earth to try to keep us out of hell and get us into heaven. But the one thing God won't do is override our free will. People will be judged on the response they gave to the light they had. And um, there, there are a lot of other questions that go along with this. But God, God is love. God is not just a cosmic sadist in heaven is like, oh, I hope I can, you know, pull a gotcha on this guy. He's a good person. He tried to come to Christ, but one little technicality, yes, I can condemn him. God's not like that. God calls. God whispers. God beckons. God makes overtures. He will offer the path to Jesus, but he will not 
force us. He will not twist our arm. If people don't want Jesus in their life, he is not going to make them. Sadly, though, the corollary is this. If you reject heaven, then eternity is without God, and the Bible calls that hell. So, Alex, what about people who haven't heard the gospel and it hasn't reached places where they've lived and they've not had a presentation of the gospel? So they haven't heard it. They don't know the name of Jesus. Mm-hmm. I know there's going to be people, people that are going to push that part of the envelope to say, well, what about, what about those people? What's your response to that? Yeah. Well, you know, the, the Bible tells us everything we need to know. The Bible doesn't tell us everything we might want to know. And, and Jesus says in Matthew twenty-eight, eighteen through 20, go into all the world, make disciples from every nation. Mark sixteen fifteen, preach the gospel to every creature. Now, um, I, I want to say two things. One thing is maybe a little hard and harsh, and one thing is a little hopefully um, comforting. Um, we, we get this a lot, though. People say, yeah, but what about the guy, you know, you know the noble savage. He was born in the jungle. He never heard about Jesus. And, oh my goodness, this guy, his only crime, he was born on the wrong continent. <laughs> well, well, be careful. This dawned on me one day. Be careful about putting more stock in the deservedness of man rather than the holiness of God, because that's really kind of idolatry. And I think a lot of people, they have an idol in their mind, and that's the noble, the poor, innocent schmuck who just was born in the jungle, not in, you know, Bible Belt, USA. All right, the book of Romans says, look, even the Gentile nations who didn't have the oracles of God like Israel, by nature, did the things prescribed by the law, and it shows it was written on their hearts, so they really didn't know. So uh, people are not going to be required to do something it would be impossible for them to do. God is not irrational. And and most people, and I would say Gary Habermas from Liberty University, a brilliant guy, Dave Beck, and, and even the late, great Billy Graham uh, said as much that uh, God is not going to demand something of you that it would have been impossible for you to do. However, um, everybody has enlightenment. And I know, Bill, I've been to a number of developing nations. I've spent weeks uh, away from electricity, cell phone, on the on various mission fields of the world. And always, everywhere you go, everywhere, people will look at the sky and gesture, and they'll, they'll say, you know, whoever God is, please have mercy on me. So um, most people, Billy Graham included, would say that God, God judges people on the response they gave to the light they had. Now, um, the Bible also is very clear about human nature, and I, I think God knows human nature better than we do. People love darkness rather than light because their deeds are evil. Mm-hmm. Um, and and so I will say this. Um, I, I know we were in Zambia, and we, we saw hundreds of people in uh, a place called Mwembeshi, there's an M and a W together. It's a diphthong, mwah, mwah, Mwembeshi. I'm probably pronouncing it wrong. We saw hundreds of people come to Christ. And in this particular village, they had looked at the sky, pled to the sky, and they had 
a number of the tribal leaders said, God, whoever you are, if you'll only show us, we want you, we need you, God, uh, tell us who you are and we'll respond. And eventually the gospel came and hundreds throughout this region accepted Christ. So when people have responded to the available light, God sends more light. Um, But nobody, let, let me just say this, the judgment of God is going to be fair. Not only fair, it's going to be merciful. Um, there will be people, I mean, you read Matthew seven, twenty-one through 24, where Jesus is going to say, depart, I never knew you. Mm-hmm. They, they knew the right, but they did the wrong. But, but I will say this, whenever somebody plays the, the card about the, the noble savage, and they're like, yeah, but what about this one guy? And I'll say, okay, two thoughts. For one, about the guy who's never heard, for one thing, my friend, you can't say you never heard. That's true. The other thing is, if you're that concerned about the lost, wonderful. Join up with us, and we'll go around the world and tell everybody. Amen. Because clearly I can tell you're concerned about the unreached. Amen. <laughs> Alex, blessings on your event tonight. We'll be, I'll be praying for you on my drive home. Thank you so much. Hey, thank, thanks, Bob. Look forward to when we can talk again. You bet. Dr. Alex McFarland has been my guest. That wraps up our show for the day. Thanks for listening, spending time with me. I've loved it. Have a great night, everyone. I'll see you tomorrow. Thanks for listening. Programming like this is made available through your support. Information available at MyFaithRadio.com.